Welcome to the New Zealand International Film Festival podcast series. Today's Q&A follows a screening of 2040. Director Damon Gamo is in conversation with Roman Travers. Thank you everybody for sticking around and um, first of all, can I just, I mean I want to clap my hands, you want to clap your hands? Damon Gamo, what a great film. I, um, I really enjoyed it and I was sent a link to the movie before uh, you guys and I d- intentionally didn't want to watch it because I wanted to watch it with you and, and pick up the same sort of vibe and feel that you would have. I've got two daughters in their 20s and I was sitting there calculating how old will I be in 2040, what am I doing to stuff the world up apart from driving a diesel Land Rover. Yeah, and I'm sure there were all those sorts of thoughts running through your heads as well. So, probably not the Land Rover, you're laughing nervously. Um, you'd be driving an electric car, I can tell, which is good. So. We've got some roving mics in the room, and they'll come around. Please don't begin your question until the mic is in your hand. There's nothing worse than other people trying to work out what it is you've, you've asked. So where is our, our roving mic at the moment? Hands up, who'd like to ask the first question? Who'd like to break the ice? How, did it, how do you deal with big corporations and global capitalism? Uh, yeah, excellent question, and um, one of the toughest parts of making the film was leaving, about, leaving out about 40 minutes around the economy section, and, you know, the first edit went for about three hours long, and it just felt like it was for a different film, that I think I really wanted to make something that show what we can fight for instead of fight against, and I think this, that narrative is already out there. We all know it's broken. There's no doubt about that. Um, it's destabilising our culture. It's destroying the planet. But I think the choice ultimately came to, because I knew this would be for a younger audience, that I just wanted to, I was aware of how overwhelmed the kids were becoming about this topic and how deeply emotional a lot of them were. So I just chose in the end to make it a film of imagination and dream and hope because there's just not enough of that. And I think, as we can all attest, it's, it's a great motivator for human beings. The work of Viktor Frankl, any psychology textbook now will tell you that we need hope and we need the possibility of a better outcome if we're actually going to be motivated and act. So as tempting as it was to take a big axe to capitalism, I just think there's already that narrative out there and we've, we've, we know. Um, so it was a conscious choice, but uh, we've already been offered a TV series to do six or ten episodes and, and one of the episodes is going to be on the economy. Um, thank you, Kapai. I mean, wow, fantastic. And I, I loved the framing, like you just said, and I, I love that you made it so accessible. Um, and that's the narrative we need. Um, and I know there's a lot. I'd love to see that extended version, and I imagine a lot hit the cutting floor. My question is really around Indigenous wisdom. And I'm curious as to... I loved that piece, which I didn't know, around the dashboards in that community and the... And the and the psychology of shifting from the individual to the to the collective and that connection. And I just wonder what your thoughts are around how we can reclaim some of that connection. Yeah, it's two great and very powerful questions to open. But I in Australia there's an interesting discussion going on at the moment. There's a um, and it's quite spectacular. A lot of our older conservative farmers, like Colin, who was in the film, but there's a bit of a wave of them. Another man named Charles Massey, who I'd highly recommend, he wrote a book called um, Call of the Reed Warbler, which I think will go down as a bit of a tome in terms of regenerative agriculture. 
But what's wonderful is a lot of these older farmers are now connecting with Indigenous elders to learn about the ancient land practices and management and how to regenerate the land. And, you know, traditionally they are diametrically opposed, especially in our country, and a lot of those farmers have been climate deniers, but they're now reaching out to these elders. So we're at the moment about to sort of shoot a story of that and sort of tell that and get that narrative out there as well because I think it's a wonderful opportunity in a time of crisis and land management to actually bring that entire community into the discussion. So um, fingers crossed. Just while the mic's drifting on to the next one, quick question, how well is New Zealand doing in what you saw globally? Uh, well, I didn't spend a lot of time here, obviously. We didn't do the research, but... Uh, I think just because you now have a leader that understands this and is trying to do things about it, you've gone straight to the top of the table, uh, especially in my country where, you know, we're still, we're 20 years behind, to be honest, and that was probably the toughest part about making the film. I, I, I do love Australia, but I was really embarrassed and frustrated with our lack of action, and I think the recent election in particular, we are all excited that this was going to be the time we'd really stepped up on climate, but uh, we doubled down, and I think there's a lot of lessons for the environment movement out of that, that... Again, we have to, it's storytelling. And in our country, we had a, a billionaire who spent $80 million on a campaign, and our Greens party spent 300 grand, you know. So our newspapers are dominated by Murdoch, they're all pro-coal. This is the battle of the stories. And again, we're having this debate about Adani, this big mine at the moment. And what isn't getting out there is that within 400 kilometres of Adani, there are 13 large-scale renewable energy projects with 4,000 jobs. Yet no one in our country knows that. So it's, again, the lessons here of how do we sell these solutions in a way that isn't saying, hey, you've got to stop what you're doing, this is bad, you're ruining the planet. But say, here's these other alternatives. You can create jobs, you can strengthen your community, value the things that you cherish, and actually talk to each other on a human level. Uh, and I think that's the big lesson and, and why I made the film, is that I think we've left a lot of the communication in this topic to the scientists. It's not their fault, but their language is not... Uh, stirring of the soul, it's words like anthropogenic, negative emissions, two degrees warming. I mean, no one knows what that means. It's so, uh, you know, it's, it's amorphous. So I think we've got to start talking about this topic at a very human level and the things we value. And that's why I didn't put too much politics in the film. It was about the kids. It was about clean air and clean water. This issue never should have been politicised, you know. And, and I think it's important to remember that it wasn't. If we go back to the late 80s, you even had Margaret Thatcher, uh, George Bush seniors, like ba bastions of the right, saying that this is the most important issue we have to face collectively. And then Shell, Exxon, they went to work and did a magnificent job of then suppressing that information, and we are where we are right now. Damon, thanks for a, uh, a very refreshing uh, exposition. As an agriculturist, I'm wondering, what sort of feedback have you had from farmers and agricultural scientific community? Yeah, I mean, the region ag, I think, is probably... Oh, gee, seaweed's a tough one to beat, but the region ag is so exciting, and what's happening in Australia is... Um, Cole Sykes, for example, who's toured the world, talking about this type of agriculture. You know, he was doing uh, workshops to 60 people five years ago. There's now 500 farmers in that room. Uh, right around the world, this is starting to gain traction. There's been really robust studies done even recently, comparisons of um, even like an impossible meat, the clean meat burger versus uh, regenerative farming and how cows can actually be used to sequester carbon into the soil. We still need to reduce our, our consumption, no doubt about it, but uh, the, the cattle can actually sequester more carbon than the methane they emit. So that science is starting to get out there. Um, the trick is that because the soils have been so damaged, as you probably know, and the amount of chemicals we've used, for a farmer to take a risk and switch to these practices can take a couple of years, and, and that's a big risk for them to lose yields. 
So actually, I can talk about it more, but we've, we've developed this huge platform off the back of the film for people to take action. And one of the things we've set up is a project called Carbon 8. And it actually, the public can make a donation, $8 a month, and that money goes to the farmer and they get paid for every percentage of carbon they put back in the soil. So just a donation of $8 a month from someone allows you to sequester 1,000 tonnes of carbon a year. So we've already had 200 farmers sign up to that in the last two weeks since we've launched that, and just huge pledges from the public, so yeah. I personally learnt more about carbon credits watching your film than I've understood in 20 years of hearing about it on national radio, so much appreciated. Um, where's our next question? Someone's waving here. Is there a... Okay, we'll come to you next. Um, thanks for a superb film. We have a problem, as um, you may in, in uh, Australia, with a media that really, a mass media, publicly funded, as in television, um, which is regarded as old-fashioned and um, not very powerful and not very relevant. How do you see the mass media, in particular television, is, uh, how do you see its importance in actually speeding all this uptake and interest up? Yeah, I mean, I can only really speak for my country and, and I think there are correlations with America because we're both sort of Murdoch-heavy, but um, there's no doubt that as, as we've concentrated wealth and power to smaller and smaller groups of people, those same people are now owning the media and they are enormously shaping the narrative. And that was a big reason for me to make this film as well, to try and intersect that narrative. But I think it goes beyond that. I even think, you know, you think of most Hollywood films and their depiction of a future is devoid of nature, robots invariably being chased, chasing humans in slums. This is, these are the collective images that we're putting out there in our consciousness and telling our kids. And I just, as all of us know, that doesn't have to be the future. And if we're not careful, we'll march straight into that because that's just the subconscious that's going on. So, again, this film was to try and cut through that and say, no, 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 not, a lot of us don't want that. Let's start dreaming again. Let's start telling different stories because... That's how we're going to get out of this, I think, is our imaginations in a time where it's very hard to imagine. We're so bombarded with content now. So much of our young, younger generation aren't stopping and being idle and letting themselves dream. We're filling ourselves with constant information. And I often say, you know, imagine Vincent van Gogh getting home with his sunflowers, chucking the flowers on the table and picking up his Instagram feed and just checking it. Like, <laughs> some of the greatest works of art never would have happened unless people allowed themselves to sit idle and reflect and dream. And so that's what I hope this film does, is kickstart that imagination. And we, our hashtag is What's Your 2040? And it's been um, extraordinary to see what people have been submitting to us, uh, school groups, uh, teachers doing projects in their class, uh, people making videos, writing songs, just to start putting up new images and a new media uh, that can match this paradigm. Um, yeah, question over here, just quickly while you're preparing yourself. Love the use of animation and lovely to see so many children here as well. If there's a, a younger person who'd like to ask who'd like to ask a question, feel free to do so as well. Are we here? Okay, we'll come there next. Just here. Thank you. Thank you for making this film. I'd worked with kids in schools doing organic gardening and planting native trees. And I'd got to the point where I was not talking to my kids. I'd just stopped about climate change because it was depressing and scary. And you have made it possible for me to talk to my kids about this again, which was fantastic. Thank you so, so much. Um, 
This morning, I steeled myself and I broke the news to my two girls that I was taking them to see a documentary. (laughs) 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 And for the first two seconds as I started to speak, we're going to the movies, but I don't want you to get too excited. (laughs) And I got my 14-year-old rolling her eyes and I said, well, wait, and I started to say what it was about. Now, this is a film about global warming and what we can do. And she just cut right across me and she said, are you talking about 2040? I really want to see that movie. (laughs) Well done, you. Thank you. My question is, how can we take your movie from this relatively small theatre and put it into the schools? How can we get it into the classrooms where hundreds of thousands of kids can see this and have... I mean, we look around, it's great to see kids here, but there's not that many here. How can we do that? Yeah, thank you. And uh, look, this speaks to this larger platform we've built. So um, the, if you are a teacher, there is a, we've got uh, 31 free lesson plans for teachers online that you can download. I'm not sure, i have to check if they're mapped to your curriculum, but we've had 5,000 downloads of that in Australia already for that exact reason, that, that teachers can start using this language for the kids. Uh, the children have been, like all the cinemas in Australia have been packed with kids and that's been the most heartening. Uh, we've just launched in Australia because we're about to finish the cinema release. There is a school screening program, so we have yeah, countless screenings going on there. The same will happen in New Zealand, so if you go to our website, you'll be able to see that. And what's really wonderful, the, you know, the film does open here on the August, August the 22nd around the country. Uh, but just the response we've had, even internationally, we, we, the UN actually, they're showing the film at their climate summit in in September, and not only that, they're showing two minutes, uh, a two-minute clip at the opening uh, General Assembly to every world leader of the film. And, um, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, and I, uh, I just feel, yeah, the, the kids are the voices that are going to escort us through this. We need to help them and nurture them, but, um, yeah, I, I really appreciate it. I think it takes all of us, and teachers, I think, play a crucial role in... in giving the kids hope again. Well done to your daughter, who was cringing and trying to hide there while you mentioned it. <laughs> there was a, a young person with a question over the back here. Do we have a mic over there? Um, you're not a young oh, person. <laughs> well, you're young. Okay. But um, I'm passionate about aviation, and New Zealand depends on aviation as well as ships with money, aviation to bring people to our country for a large portion of our um, economy. Um, uh, I, I think um, solar-powered, uh, oblique-wing and blended-wing aircraft could be part of the future. Have you done any research in this area and what do you think? Yeah, great question. So uh, only, I think, three weeks ago at the Paris Air Show, they released the first uh, fully electric nine-seater plane that can travel 700 kilometres. Uh, all the researchers I spoke to about this said that in the next four or five years, you'll see a lot of the short-haul flights, sort of two hours, especially in the US, all the FedEx are about to adapt their planes to batteries because the problem is the weight of the battery, obviously. It works in smaller airlines. But they think the larger sort of scale um, air travel will be still 10 or 15 years away because of the, the battery weight. But there's also probably an intermediary period where we might use the combustion to do the takeoff where the most energy is required and then it could switch to a battery for the duration and then engage again later on. But there's also really interesting technology around um, seaweed as a fuel and algae as a fuel to fly aeroplanes as well. So yet another great advantage to, to growing seaweed forests out at sea. There was a, there was a child. There you are. Oh, there it is. Okay, yeah, cool. Um, I kind of have two questions. Uh, first, 
would you ever consider using fusion as a alternative power source? Uh, yeah, so th the thing about the fusion is that it's, it's always been just about to happen. It's always been 10 or 15 years away. And I know we're sort of getting closer now. And if it happens, then it's going to be wonderful. But I don't think we can bank on it just yet. And until we're waiting for that, we have to just double down and do the renewable thing as fast as we can. So if we get there one day, potentially, but the, the plummeting costs of solar and battery storage should be enough to excite us right now. In fact, uh, California only yesterday announced they're going to build the largest ever, uh, world's largest solar and storage battery storage, which makes their gas production obsolete. So there's a similar model being proposed for the Northern Territory at the moment, because we actually don't even need gas anymore. And question number two. Um, would you ever think of like you know, using some rocks from the moon, like because so, um, some rocks contain elements like hydrogen and helium? Would you ever um, consider using those to like help power stuff in any way? Yeah, look, I think there is a bit of a narrative at the moment often by very wealthy tech billionaires to say we need to go off the planet and start mining other planets. And I think that's that mindset's the problem that's got us into this mess in the first place. I think we need to um, understand that we can't keep growing forever on a finite planet. We use about 90 billion metric tonnes of resources now every year on the planet. Uh, that's logging and metals and, and livestock. And the Earth can only replenish 50 billion metric tonnes in a year. And at our current growth rates, we're on track to, to consume 180 billion metric tonnes by 2050. So that wipes out most living things on the planet. So I think we, rather than keep growing and looking offshore, uh, off-planet, I think we need to value what we have here, use materials in a smarter way, promote circular or more sharing economies, and actually get back to a, a, an interconnected uh, ethos that sees us caring much more for the planet we have, rather than um, trashing this one and escaping to the next one. Um, fantastic question too. Uh, two questions, fantastic questions here from a younger person. Feel free to keep the questions coming. We have one over here, yep. And it's very um, nice to see your second film. Last time I saw the one with the sugar one, that is very helpful. And today I'm not um, asking, or maybe asking a question. Is that uh, what should I say? I uh, had uh, read an article about uh, the company, they use the debt fish to generate energy. Have you heard of this before? I, I th I th what did you say? About, was it fish? Did you say fish? Dead fish. The fish that are already died. Right. For no, example, the uh, big uh, company right. like uh, Sanford or whatever in Australia, okay. some fish, they already died uh, in the mm. vessel. And then... Um, one Austrian company, mm -hmm. uh, I think it's the first in Austria, okay. they turned the dead fish into a fuel. Wow. And then uh, there is a, a tourist uh, vessel, uh, is already the first one to use that as a biofuel. Wow. And the company, I think, that uh, generate that uh, uh, fuel is the... Uh, I don't know how to pronounce it, it's M-A-E-S-K. How do you pronounce Mask. that, the number one container ship 
in the com- oh, yeah, in the, the whole world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll have a look at that because that could fit very nicely into the six-part series. So stay tuned. <laughs> then will you be uh, able to promote it uh, in Australia as well, or in New Zealand? Because that is a very good biofuel. Uh, uh, we'll have use. to start charging you by the minute. <laughs> um, thank you. Yeah, can I just you. suggest um, a couple more questions if we've got them? And I've just got one that some of you might be feeling. I actually felt excited and quite numb and scared at times watching that. Mm. And I don't know that I'm doing the right thing. Mm. And we don't own big corporations, most of us. So apart from not using plastic bags, what's some of the really practical advice that you give people here to go away with? Yeah, I mean, that, that was a really important part of making this film, was to make sure that um, we could capture that feeling afterwards and send people to action. So rather than being prescriptive and saying, you know what, eat less meat and drive, ride a bike to work, which doesn't suit everyone, um, you can go to our website, which is called whatsyour2040.com, and there's a button there that says activate your plan. And we'll ask you a series of questions, what type of person you are, how much time you have available, and in particularly what you resonated with in the film. And then we've teamed up with about 50 different organisations around the world to give you six or seven things that you can do right now in your home, at school, in your workplace. And some of those are really exciting. So, for example, we've, um, apart from the Carbonate one, there's a, we've got permission to launch the first seaweed platform actually off Bruny Island in Tasmania. So we're doing a platform down there. It's a crowd fund for $350,000 and we're only 40000 short to, to build that. Uh, and the microgrid energy that you saw in, in Bangladesh. So we set up an equity crowd fund for people to own some of that technology and bring it to Australia. And those guys have raised uh, $2.5 million in three weeks, uh, which is just extraordinary. So um, you'll see, whether it's educating girls, whether you're a teacher, there's just so many different ways that you can get involved and actually keep going and, and not let this dissipate and walk away today and get back on Twitter and forget about it. Actually, how do you keep that momentum going and that hopeful feeling? Yeah, which is so important. Did you have a question? Netherlands, and I was very happy to see some of our bike scenes in the movie. The Netherlands is already 2040. I could have filmed the whole <laughs> film there. Uh, I'm just very curious, is there going to be a release in Europe in the Netherlands? That's the little question. And the bigger question is, you're talking a lot about narrative and storytelling. Um, I'm sure your film is just a wee bit of the stories that are out there. What are you aiming to do to get all these other beautiful stories <laughs> out in the world? Yeah, so look, it's, 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 it's been extraordinary, actually, the response to, to the film, not just here, but um, in Australia. But we do, we open right through Europe in October and November, um, and then in the, U- in the US in January and February, which would be really interesting. But so many different organisations have come, have stepped in, and, and large um, donors, to be honest, philanthropic donors, to really try and let us create a bit of a 2040 media platform so that it turns into something well beyond the film that we can create a space for discussion, for sharing these ideas, almost like a vice platform but for solutions and actually um, you know, just get this out there and, and use the spending, get it out on social media, do whatever we can to try and shift that narrative. So um, you know, it's not just me, there's, there's all these people and different directors that have approached us even since the film's been out that want to do that and I think that speaks to how ready we all are to actually step up and, and turn things around. Just raise your hand if you do have questions. We have one here. And just before I come to you, what's the website people go to if they want to find out how to run their lives better? Uh, what's your2040.com. Brilliant. Hi there. I just want to say um, thank you for this beautiful film. You made me cry. Um, and it was really lovely to hear all the, the voices of the kids. I thought that was the most powerful thing that you used in your narrative. 
I work in waste minimisation. I help people to reduce their waste and run workshops looking at consumption and things like that. Quick shout out, shameless plug. I run a Facebook group. It's called Zero Waste in NZ. We've got over 25,000 New Zealanders joined up now. So if you are looking for solutions, it's a really great welcoming community to um, go and ask your questions. It kind of feels like some of the um, solutions that are being presented, not just from your film, but in the wider narrative are looking at how can we solve this problem continuing with the consumption as we are now? And it feels like overconsumption is, is this big elephant in the room that we're not really addressing. And I just wondered what your thoughts on how we can look at solving that particular problem. Well, I think uh, what, what New Zealand's doing is really interesting in terms of creating a different metric to measure society by, this sort of wellbeing index that's being proposed. I um, was lucky enough to spend uh, 10 days in Bhutan recently. At their, they had like a leadership conference there and we got to sit in parliament and look at how they assess their policies. And what they've done is created this, obviously this gross national happiness metric. But what it is, is basically nine pillars that every policy has to go through. So yep, GDP is a small part of that. But also there is community vitality, envi environmental wellbeing, psychological wellbeing, gender. And just to see this group of politicians discuss all these factors before making a decision suddenly changes the, the value structure and the foundation of anything that gets created in that society. So you walk through a school, because it's come from that set of values, it just feels different. The streets are different. The way people interact with each other, they're not over-consuming because that's not seen as the pillar of success and constant growth. Advertising, spending $6 billion a year to get us buying more stuff, that's not allowed there. So I think whatever new system we're going to move to, I think this is a wonderful way to create a stepping stone and a transition because... These are the things we value, deeply value, and they mean a lot to us. And I think lots of people are only consuming because they don't feel fulfilled or happy in parts of their life. There's an emptiness there. And I think the more we can address that, create stronger senses of community, I think the repercussions of that will be less consumption, less need to please and fill that hole. Maybe. Hi. Um I'm a marine biologist from Sweden. I just want to say I loved your movie. Hi. Yeah. Yes, I loved your movie. I have a comment and a question. The comment is about that you're portraying the loss of biodiversity as something that, from what I saw, you're portraying it as it can be regenerated. Whereas, um, as a marine biologist, I have learned that that's not possible. Like, when species are gone, they're gone forever. That could be something to think about for everyone. Um, and my question is about um, the tragedy of the commons. So you're mentioning in the movie how shifting focus to a we perspective from the I perspective could be good for a community. Uh, but I'm wondering, have you considered how that could um, change each individual's sense of responsibility? Like, what is my responsibility? How should I change in this? Yeah, so um, to your first comment, I think, um, yes, you're right, there's some species that aren't going to come back. I think that's, uh, I think we all understand that. But what I saw in the film, both with Brian in Massachusetts and the, the research they've done, once the kelp has grown in, these, in, the, in the oceans again, the fish start laying their eggs because they've got that habitat. Suddenly that brings back the larger fish and suddenly they're getting whale sharks in parts of the, the atolls that haven't been there for 30 years. The same with the regenerative farmers. All the farms you go and visit these perennial grasses that have been laying dormant for who knows, start to come back. 
that brings the insects and the bugs and the dung beetles and then the birds come back. So there is a way of that system, that ecosystem of biodiversity to regenerate as long as you create the right conditions for it. And that was the, that was the turning point for me about the Regen Ag when I stood in some of those farms and just, it was magic. And I thought, this is where I want to get my food from because all that life in the soil, the 7 billion microbes, are being passed into the food. And this is, again, this is something we're trying to make clear. I took it out of the film, but to... You'd have to eat eight oranges today to get the same level of vitamin A that one orange had 60 years ago because of the life in the soil. So how do we make that connection to people? Even if they're dubious on climate, we have to fix our soils. The UN says we've got 60 years of topsoil left because when the, the settlers first came to Iowa, it was 16 feet deep. It's now 30 centimetres because we've been mining that soil of all its life and biodiversity and nutrients. So... I do have more faith in nature than that. I think once we get out of the way, things can regenerate very quickly. The tragedy of the commons is an interesting one, and it has been that narrative has been, I think, incredibly hijacked by the right wing. Uh, to be honest, I think um, that what I love about those dashboards is that sense of making the invisible visible again, and making us all accountable to understand that we all play a part in this resource consumption game. And it's funny because we only recently got solar panels at our house, like a proper system. And it's incredible how much more aware I am now of when we're using our energy. When do I put on the washing machine? I've suddenly become conscious about our resource use. And I think that we have technology on our side for the first time to do that on a really large scale. And I think inadvertently it reminds us that we're all connected and we're relying on, on each other. Yeah, there are countries in the world where if you build new now, you have to have solar panels and you have to collect your own water off the roof. Why on earth aren't we doing that here? Yeah. I don't know. But there was a younger person... Here we are. You're a younger person. Do you want to stand up on the stage? Yep. Come up here. Come with me. Come and, come and stand beside Damon. Actually, sit in this chair. Sit in this chair. You can be me. Yes. What's, your, what's your name, mate? Um, my name's Tommy. Tommy. Yeah. Well, in which countries are microgrids illegal and why are they illegal in those countries? Can I just say that we've done 70 Q&As um, with this film and the kids always ask the best questions, much better questions than the adults. So uh, it's a complicated answer as to why they're illegal, but the main reason is because our old structure likes to concentrate all the money and the power at the top. It's like a hierarchical system. So the microgrids really shake up that system because it allows us all to share our energy and decentralise it. So more of us have power instead of just a small group of people. So in America, it's illegal at the moment. Uh, in the UK, it's illegal at the moment. Even in my country, in Australia, it's illegal. But most of the experts I've spoken to said that the next two years, it's gonna start to change. In Australia now, you can go to Ikea and buy solar panels and a battery combination. And they think in about three or four years, you'll be able to buy that little box and put it on your own home. And that's when the revolution starts. Did you have any more questions? You did very well. I'm not paying you, by the way, but you did, you did very well. Thanks, Tommy. Was there any? We've got a question here. Okay. Oh, hi. Um, I loved your vision of the city and being able to hear the birds sing and have the space, and it's a beautiful vision. And I'm wondering about the driverless vehicles, and my question is, do they rely on 5G to make them work, which is definitely not friendly to biological life? That's no. my concern. 
Yeah, so the, the whole 5G thing has really come out in Australia in the last six months, so it wasn't there when I, when I edited the film. And the driverless cars that I went and sat in and the ones I talked to the experts about were all running on 4G still. So, yes, there, there is a discussion of whether 5G, whether the cars are going to require 5G. I have I spent a week, three weeks ago, just looking at every single conceivable study on it and I must admit just came out completely muddled about what the truth actually is. Couldn't find any proper independent studies, not from one of the companies, about the, the effects of it. I know EMF does its damage anyway, we all know that. Uh, I have a feeling, though, that the 5G has been overinflated in terms of its actual effectiveness. That Some of the companies that I, I, I read about said that we don't necessarily need it. A lot of the things can run on our existing 4G network. It's just, again, this, this narrative that says we've got to keep growing, it's got to be bigger, it's got to be 5G, and then it's going to be 6G. Like, when's enough? When do we actually stop and say, we've got enough data, we've got enough information, we're actually living pretty good lives like we are? So I think that's a bigger question, but I, I don't have an answer for you yet, unfortunately, and I, I am waiting. Actually, Switzerland's probably the, the country that are going to do the most robust study. They're doing a huge test on it at the moment, and uh, I'm, I'm eagerly awaiting that outcome because then we'll make a statement either way on the film because it's obviously crucial. Yeah. Maybe just time for one or two. Do we have one more? Okay. Oh, yeah. There's one in the front, yeah. one at the back. Where's the closest mic? Uh, here. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> we wanted three. Uh, okay. Uh, a couple of years ago, we went to WOMAD, which is an international music festival in New Plymouth. Um, and they had these um, sort of holsters. It, kinda, it looks like this. It's, a, uh, it's one of those rubber bra bracelet things with a little hook and a piece of fabric. And it attaches to your coffee mug. And you, instead of making a whole bunch of cardboard coffee mugs into the trash, you just reuse these. And I also find that baristas are really nice at washing them out, you know, when, after I've used them. So thank you. Thank you. You, uh, can, you can do these yourself. You can there's do actually yourself. Um, one, a really amazing innovation that's come up out of Berlin. There's a guy now who, uh, he drives around all the cafes after the morning rush and he collects the coffee grounds and he's built a mould that actually makes disposable coffee cups or proper coffee cups out of the used coffee moulds. So it's just that's the perfect example of a circular economy right there. Wow. I'm a tea drinker. Any other tea drinkers in the room? <laughs> I don't drink coffee. Um, yes. Am I pointing at you or you? Who's got the mic? Over here. Over here. There. Oh, hi. Um, my son tells me that we live on a finite planet and that there's not enough of the chemical elements that you use to make solar panels to make them as ubiquitous as we would need. So presumably the scientists are thinking ahead, I hope. Yeah, so in Australia there's just been, um, there's two uh, companies that have emerged in the last six months that actually recycle panels. So it's becoming quite a big industry to collect older panels and refit them and repurpose them using those materials. And uh, it's called a remanufacturing industry. And I think I sort of mentioned it in the film that the same's gonna happen with cars. If we're gonna have less cars, what are we gonna do with all those materials? So industries we don't even know about right now are going to start popping up if we're going to have to turn this around and Paul Hawken actually who's in the film who I sit on the pretend wind turbine and have that conversation with uh, he's just writing a book at the moment called The Regeneration and it's about the one billion jobs that we can create by building this version of 2040 all the industries we can't even think of yet that involve using materials better upcycling things uh, redesigning cities building seaweed platforms 
all this talk about the fear of jobs, absolutely, it's valid. But what isn't in that conversation is if we're going to turn this around, we need so many people to be employed with jobs with genuine purpose that can change the world. I think we are on to our last one. By the way, tea bags have plastic in them, which is a horrible thought, but they do. Where was the mic for the last question? There was someone over there. Do we have a last question at all? We have one here. A taker. Okay. Oh, well, let's, let's get this guy first, and then we'll come back to you. Do you want to come up on the stage? Go on, then. Why not? Big round of applause. Woo! The future. Hello, my name is Ali Duffy, and I'm from Whangaparoa. And I'm a global warming kid in my school and try to help the best I can. Me and my mum down there, we live zero plastic and nearly zero waste. And we're trying our best. And uh, I'm, there's a guy called Phil Somerville, if you know who he is. No, well, he traveled from New Zealand to America and back and picked up every microplastic in his boat to research about it, and I'm pretty good friends with him because my my dad's mate's really good friends with him, and <laughs> <laughs> so. Have you got a movie coming out? Uh, <laughs> well, in about four weeks, I'm doing. My teacher, I've been, I keep on being annoying, saying, "Can we do more about global warming? Can we please be taught about global warming?" And the teacher is just getting insane about me. Keep on saying, "Can we try help this planet?" And then the teacher's like, Ali, just, I'll give you a lesson. You have a whole hour to say whatever you want and teach a class. <laughs> Thank you. And I was like, sure, that's amazing. So I'm having Phil Somerville to come down with me and help with the presentation. And I know, yeah. I'll offer you one too, mate. Why don't we do a screening of the film at your school and I'll zoom in or Skype in and do a Q&A with your class. Wow. How about that? <laughs> Deal? Yeah, okay. okay. Done. That's great. Yeah. Ali, thank you. Deal. Let's hear it for Ali from Whangaparoa. Woo! Okay, get off, get off. Um, well, you have the mic. You have the last question. Hi. Great film. R really enjoyed it. Uh, are, you, are you consciously pursuing a, uh, a, th a way of doing things that basically sidesteps the whole political frazzle that we're in at the moment, this sort of gridlock and insane sort of stuck place that we all seem to be in. Are you consciously going around all of that? Uh, yeah, to, to be honest, I am. I think um, people are so disillusioned, especially in my country, and, and just sick of it. And as I said before, I don't think this should be a political issue. This is our home, and that's why I did that scene at the start, to say that you know, it's a home that we're renting off future generations, and we've got to change that metaphor, I think, and it's been politicised. And it's really interesting, if you look pre-scientific revolution, every culture on Earth had such a different metaphor for the planet, whether it was custodians of the land, whether it was, I think the Chinese said, reverent guests, uh, Mother Earth and Father Sky. As soon as you get that Cartesian model kick in, and there's been great development since that, but the language starts to shift from an extraction model. I mean, um, Bacon used to say, um, we must tame and hound nature in her wanderings, enter and penetrate her every corner. So we've fundamentally changed our view of the planet and I think unless we shift that back to a deep care and understanding, uh, we're not going to get through this and it's not going to happen through a political lens. Yeah. Thank you.
thanks. Um, yeah, thanks for, for sticking around and asking the questions. There's clearly a lot of interest in that, and it's been a great way for me to kick off the New Zealand International Film Festival. There's another week to go, so make sure you look online and grab what you'd like to see. Uh, this is a book that I think I'll be getting. It's 2040 by Damon Gamo. So it's in Unity Books, and um, I think that's all. It's in Unity Books, right? So there we go. That was fantastic. I think we should give Damon a great big round of applause. Thank you. Thank you.